Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we've got a wonderful show with for you today. Steve Davis from TapeCon has joined us. And I just want to say thanks, Steve. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Michael. Good to be on. Good to be here. Good. So we have a uh, tradition where we just ask guests to... Tell us their journey to getting in, getting into the family business. How did that work for you? Family biz. Yeah, I mean, um, it, I guess, well, it goes all the way back. It goes all the way back probably to summers. I mean, of course, in my family, it's like when you turn 14, you, you know, catch a ride with dad and go to the factory and work a summer, right? So it was summers uh, 14 through, I don't know. 17 or 18. Yeah. You know, so you kind of get introduced to the family business because of, you know, dad was going to work and I was able to catch a ride and, and work summers and, and pocket some cash, but it was an opportunity to, I mean, I think when I was 14, I was just cleaning machines. I was just kind of sent around just kind of cleaning stuff, but eventually um, I believe, I don't know what it is now in New York state, but when I turned 16, I was able to kind of operate equipment. So at that point in time, um, then I got into some of the production assets and was able to do some printing and some cutting of materials and whatnot. So that, uh, I guess, all the way back into high school, really. But 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 it wasn't. It's not like I was thinking this was going to be the end all in high school. You know, I went, but it did influence. I think my college trajectory because I ended up going um, to Clarkson University, and my degree was manufacturing management. So of course, it's influenced, right? There was influence there. But I had I, I eventually changed though to more of an engineering um, degree midway through. But um, and so so I think I was locked on thinking, oh, I'm going in the family business. But then um, maybe sophomore junior year of college, I think my trajectory, my mindset shifted, and I was like, oh, I'm not going back to the family business. And so after college, I hired on um, to a Fortune 100 company for of five years, I think I was with them, but I, I hired on to their manufacturing engineering development program. It, at the time it was Cooper Industries, but now it, people have been buying up everybody. So I think it's now Danaher ultimately. But, um, and then through that experience, I really wasn't planning on come back to the family business. I thought I'd have a career long, in a long career in that organization, but, you know, um, how do I long story short this, you know, combination of uh, personal stuff, wanting to get back to Western New York kind of sucked back into uh, consideration of Western New York. Um, the family business kind of reared its head when I was five years into a, what I thought was a alternate career. And then I found myself um, entertaining coming back to the family business. So I'll stop there. I can, I can comment more, I think, on the, I think my, my father's psychology that I had this thought of whether or not he's a genius or whether he was crazy on his psychology on how he got me back. I'll come, I'll come back to that. 
<laughs> I love that. That's I mean, and that's, you know, a lot of times you hear people talk and say, you know, you need to do that three years at least minimum someplace else. And you didn't, it wasn't purposeful, but by default, you did five years out. And my gut says you were successful in the career and could have stayed doing that. And it would have been fine, but you know, there was an opportunity to come back and help the family out. Yeah. Well, yeah, there actually is construct to that though, too. We, in our family charter, we do have a rule that says that you have to be eight years gone, but it includes four years of college. So in the charter, it outlines four years of college plus four years somewhere else. I'm not sure if my grandfather called it like the BYOB policy, like bring your own experience beer to the party, but uh, maybe I just put that, those words in his mouth. I don't know, but that's how I've always kind of referred to it. So yeah, I got my five years, which obviously, you know, was beyond the four-year kind of quota, um, but there actually was structure there. But I, I think at the time when I was, you know, in my five years at that Fortune 100 company, I, I wasn't like counting the days to four. It just kind of ended up being the, the yeah. time frame that it was. I think that is a phenomenal acronym. We're going to start using that uh, with my team and uh, as we're talking to clients, BYOB, bring your own business experience. Yeah, there you go. BYOBE. There you go. <laughs> Love it. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about TapeCon a little bit. Give us the history. You, you mentioned family charter. I want to go back to that. You mentioned your father's psychology. I want to mention that, but I think it's important to understand the history of the company. How many, what generation are you? What is the company kind of, you know, how has it transformed itself through the years? Yeah, and I, I, I might not do as good of a job as my father could do on, on the history side, you know, but I'll try to give the, you know, a lot of this is on the website too. So I don't want to bore people listening to this, like, okay. But I mean, yeah, we're 102 years old now. So in okay. 1919, my great, great grandfather um, found, in essence, patented a, a machine and, and, and it's kind of an interesting time in 1919, right? So there was, um, you know, electricity and things kind of coming on board. And so he created what was called the Davis Bulletin machine, which was a, in essence, we, we joke and call it the original PowerPoint because, you know, static signs became variable with the Davis Bulletin machine. So we had a uh, hand painting uh, division that in essence took, um, it was like an ad agency with a painting um, division and then the machine. So we would in essence, it was an advertiser. It was an advertising machine. And so there was a series of posters that would rotate in the Davis Bulletin machine, um, ver putting variable content in front of people. My grandfather, I don't, maybe it, this might be me throwing words in his mouth again, but I remember always hearing like, you know, the girl who used to walk across the stage announcing the next act in like a vaudeville theater, sure. we put her out of business because our machine would just sit on the end and it would rotate and it would show the next uh, act. And there's uh, the rumor mill and uh, is that uh, Abbott and Costello were sales reps of our company selling um, uh, these machines into vaudeville theaters and catching commissions. So that's way back in the day. And, but in essence um, that, so the company was founded on a, on a patent and we were, we were inventors, we were founding inventors, but when that. It's not the, boring by the way, that was wicked cool yeah. about that. That is, you know, and that's, it, from a family business perspective, what we look at today and say, you know, where did we come from? And I don't want to bore people. It's so important to think about, you know, your great, great grandfather did something pretty miraculous, created something that didn't exist, you know, not just a business, which, you know, is like crazy, but, you know, inventing something 
back in 1919 that has developed a legacy as we're going through to today and you know even big impact it's very cool yeah, yeah but there was a series of i'll say intrapreneurial pivots you know along the journey which 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 is interesting i mean the, you know the machine when it when it lived its I'd say lived its useful life. Um, well, hand painting became screen printing. So obviously that's a core competency that we still possess today, although we're doing you know more functional printing than we are traditional graphic printing. But but that that competency of screen printing was built to sc- literally hand print, hand screen print signs, right? And so when the machine kind of you know lived its useful life, or maybe patents ran out, I don't know the full history, but uh, in the 40s, there was the war effort. We started printing water slide off decals for Bell Aircraft and Curtis. And, and so we kind of became a, serving an OEM market in terms of being a tier one supplier of graphics to support um, aerospace, you know, and so but and it kind of evolved from there. So we kind of became an industrial printer. Where we no longer kind of, and there was a pivot there because obviously there was a decision, the machines, not a core not core to the business. We're going to take this printing capability and create a new customer base and a new business model. And, and, and so there was a pivot there and that was, um, you know, another generation's problem. Right. And they, they, but they, they solved that problem. We've been on that road still. We serve, you know, the majority of our sales is OEM sales where we're, where we're playing, we're playing a role in the, as an outsourced manufacturing partner to be uh, either producing a component of our OEM customer designs, or in some cases where they're one-stop shop, we're doing their full product uh, for them. And, and also providing a lot of engineering consultation design services with that. So that's still a tenant in the business and but we're, we're continuing to evolve. So we're serving the healthcare medical device space and industrial OEM space as a, uh, not just printing, but now we've got a variety of different capabilities that we help, I'll say brand owners, either launch a product or uh, make product line improvements or scale up their product launch opportunities. So we serve the new product introduction processes of our OEM customers through a variety of service, including a full outsourced manufacturing. Love it. So I mean, a lot of people over the last three years, this is the first time they've heard the word pivot um, and you know, having to get through you know what we went through with COVID. But for you guys, historically, it's really neat that you know, you've had pivots in the past. And I think it's important from a family business perspective to take that into consideration. What was done in the past may not be the future going forward. And we, you know, I think what gets hard, it's easy for you to look at it and say, okay, I might have to do something different than dad did, but for for dad or grandpa to look at you and say, how could you be doing something different well, it's like, well, you guys, you know, got us here, but what got us here may not get us there. And we need to be open to the potential to pivot. I think that's a really important point. Well, it takes less pressure on me, uh, you know, maybe us us adapting and changing when I can look at the history and say, well, that's exactly what we've been doing, yeah. you know, for the last 102 years, you know, a lot of flexibility, adaptability, read and react. And um, but- awesome. There, there's been some, I mean, there's other stuff in the history too. I mean, obviously, you know, the company's name is not Davis Bulletin. So there's a whole history of how TapeCon came in. There were, there's a whole long history, which again, you know, I don't need to bore everyone on all the details of that history, but I'll say that there is, 
there was outside um, partners involved in my grandfather's generation. And then there was um, a buy sell in place and, 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 you know, whatever, you know, people die and things change and things just kind of happen and, and um, the outcome is the outcome. And then sometimes you get off a path, but then you're on a path, but obviously the continuity through a lot of this has been, you know, the Davis family involved as owners working in the business. Yeah. And, well, and, and again, the purpose of this show is to allow other people that have not gone through all the things that your family has gone through to hear them. So that, you know, that history is super cool. When you start thinking about, you know, we changed because of a buy-sell agreement. We've changed because products were different. We changed because machines were different. Um, I think all of those things are super important. And again, you know, I, my father, was you know first generation wealth advisor serving family businesses but he served you know Kodak executives and retirees and you know it wasn't just family businesses um my father when i started telling him that we're going to help coach businesses to get their strategy right he's like that's not what we do i'm like that's not what you did but you know it's and so it was really difficult for him to hear, you know, what we do. And thank goodness that we've made that pivot because, you know, our belief is that, you know, managing assets and managing the wealth and helping the family with all those stuff, those things is great, but their biggest asset for our, our clients is the business. And here we are saying, we're going to help you with your wealth and their biggest chunk of wealth. We, we didn't get, you know, the, the tools necessary to do that. So we went out and did that. And it's, it's a game changer in the industry for us to be able to help a company go from 10 million to $40 million with some new ideas and thinking, um, no different than for you guys to sit there and say, you know, the, the machine served its purpose. Um, well, you recognize that what got you here did, won't get necessarily get you there. And yeah. yeah, I feel like, you know, the external environment's different for each generation. I mean, everyone's dealing with, you know, so many different external opportunities and threats that need to be considered. And reality is, is um, a business model changes based on, you know, what's orbiting you orbiting around you. You know what I mean? Right. So you're either going to be, you're either going to be conscious of that or, or put your head in the sand, you know? Yeah. And the other piece to that is how do we honor the legacy of the past? You know, a lot of times when you talk about like you've changed the branding, through the years, and it wasn't just based on the machine. And the, the you know the the corner scaling has always been a Davis family member involved in the ownership. But I bet you the branding that was there 40 years ago doesn't look like the branding today. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's a lot of times it's like, how do I how do I hold on to that legacy that you know Grandma drew that first logo, you know, way back when, and how do I take that but make it fit on the shelf today it's difficult it's it's hard yeah i probably don't do an, a good enough job in you know telling the story as well as i could i'm one of our raw material suppliers i was up there touring uh, i don't know last quarter i can't remember when i was up there but they had an entire room um and then they're a multi-generational family business but they had a whole room set aside it was like a museum i mean it was beautiful and i I, I took pictures and I now it's making me feel like I got to follow up on it again. But, um, you know, I, you know, they took us in and it was part of the tour and it was a dedicated room and everything was encased in glass. And they really had a conscious effort to preserve some of the artifacts along the journey. And, um, just a lot of, um, yeah, I guess just 
staying staying in tune and valuing that along the way and telling a really good story. So they're a much larger company than we are, but, but you know, I'm sure they have overhead they can allocate to that, but right, right, still right. not an excuse. You know, I, I, uh, this is a, you know, it's a project I got to get my father on now that he's kind of it, it, towards the tail end of his career. I'll, I got to try to convince him to take that project on and really put that together. Cause we probably don't, probably don't honor it as much as we should. And, and, and plus, you know, you, when you, when I was going through their tour, you know, you can just see kind of a theme of innovation through the, through the timeline, which, you know, which is, which is just fun. And it definitely, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of meaningful work, right? I mean, we're here right. working and you like, everyone likes to cling on to kind of that identity, sense of person, sense of purpose and work. And the history helps, I'll say, reiterate that purpose over time to show not just verifying purpose, but, but, but validating purpose. And, and there's a difference, right, between verification and validations. And just you can see it over a timeline. And I think internally, as you're bringing new people in, for them to understand that and understand, you know, pivot and understand, you know, where we came from, um, it can be super helpful for them to understand purpose and values and those things um, that have been built up over, over 100 years. So good for you. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Through the years, you know, what are some of the obstacles that the family or the business has overcome? You talked about you had a buy-sell agreement. If you, you know, those, I, a lot of times I think the stories that we talk about and the history, it's so important because that's what we learned from. We, you know, you don't learn from all the successes as much as you learn from stubbing your toe and saying, okay, that hurt. Let's not do that again. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind talking about, you know, what are some of the stories of obstacles that the family or the business have overcome through the years? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's plenty prior to my time that, you know, I wouldn't be able to speak to as much, but I, you know, I, I re-entered the family business in 2005. So I came back to the company, uh, came in as a manufacturing engineer and kind of worked my way up from there. But um, I, I think, you know, so what recession was 08, right? So we, sure. and I remember, you know, so it was three years in and then we, uh, we had a facility in Rochester location. We had our Buffalo facility and the way those two facilities, in essence, the customer mix was laid out uh, where the Rochester division was primarily producing more healthcare product revenue out of that space. And the Buffalo division was more of an industrial um, space where the customer mix was much more general industrial. And I remember the, the Buffalo division took a big hit. I mean, we were you know, doing layoffs and all kinds of stuff, because I think we were down 45%, some really tough number. Um, but, but the interesting thing, though, around that time, if you remember what was happening in parallel with the, with the recession in 08, was also the swine flu. You know, it's funny, you think about COVID now, right? But the swine flu was happening then, you know, this other pandemic didn't hit the states or whatever, but it was in, in the swine flu, actually, um, some of the healthcare products that we sell into were core up, uh, correlated to um, programs that would scale in, in the event of, of those situations. So we actually had an increase in sales on the, in that division and, and it kind of leveled the ship. And I think what it taught me was, especially in a family business, it's kind of like, I kind of report to the family, right? Like I, of course I report to all our employees too, but, but I report to the family and it's kind of like in the strategy, how do you bolt in risk aversion to ensure longevity. So you don't want too many eggs in one basket. Like right. if we would have been all in industrial during that time, like it could have really threatened, you know, the organization. 
But because of the diversity that we had in the customer mix and the product mix that we had, we were able to kind of weather the storm and we got through that, um, you know, without much issue. I mean, some pain, no, I mean, obviously we had to make some, some tough choices, but, but the company wasn't severely threatened. So, um, you know, that comes to mind as, as just a lesson of if, if the family business's goal is to stay in a, stay in business, at least in the current business model and not kind of get upended and have to re and, and start from scratch, founding a new business, then, um, consciously being, uh, consciously having, um, a diverse type of mix to, to be risk averse is kind of part of the strategy. You know what I mean? So, so I've been kind of aware of just not, you know, we want to take risks, but not, not risks to the point where the downside isn't protected. And then all of a sudden the entire family enterprise is at risk. Love it. And when we do that through what we call a market map, um, we love to map it out everything from the customers, the channels to the suppliers and associations and partners and competitors. And then, and then you draw lines to go through to say, okay, where is money flowing through the market? Not just us, but through the market so that we can look at it and say, oh, and I'm often surprised when I do this with a family business, they're like, okay, 45% of our revenue is coming from one place. Well, we, we might want to think about that uh, a, a little differently. So good on you for, for recognizing that. Um, that's great. You talked about the family charter. I want to I hit on that a little bit. Talk about when did the family start putting those kinds of things into place? What was, you know, what, what, if you know anything, highlights of your family charter, if you don't mind talking about them, that would be great to share. Yeah. So my grandfather, I think I got this right. Well, he, he, he went through a uh, university of Buffalo center for entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial leadership program and um, ended up partnering um, with his classmate, Jerry Murak, who still is running a practice today. And they ended up putting in place a um, some more family structure to the to the family business. One of those components was kind of this concept of a family charter, and I you know wasn't there to kind of obviously in terms of how it was formed, but in an essence we have a document that you know outlines just a lot of basic things. You know, I mean I already mentioned the uh, BYOBE policy, you know, and that that's that's kind of in there, but um, you know at the time they. They, in essence, um, put structure to all that. They were inclusive of you know, all the people in the business at the time, got some outside um, consultancy to kind of put it together. And it's created kind of, you know, guidelines for the family. You know, it, it's got guidelines in terms of, um, you know, succession planning, um, kind of defining kind of the family business culture. You know, for us, um, at, we've, we've chosen to really be really outline everything in a, I'll say, performance-based accountability system. So, you know, for example, um, compensation is all by market pay. You know, it's, it's going to be, what's the, what's the value of the position? And, and then as if it's a regular non-family business and um, measure everything up to fair market type program. Um, every owner still goes through a normal, you know, we're employees, right? So it's kind of, it was really meant to put uh, performance-based culture around everything and have high level of accountability and not a lot of distinction uh, with being a regular employee. So, and so 
I think that's answering your question, but that's just yeah. one example. And then, but it, it also goes into just kind of like, you know, who can enter the business under what condition, um, who can't enter the business. And all those are kind of ironed out in the family charter and still under construction. I mean, we, uh, that was put in place, you know, what, in the nineties or something, but then in 2013 or 14, I think we, um, we were founding members of at the, t- the program doesn't exist anymore, but there was a family business, family business program that came out of the center for entrepreneurial leadership. And we participated in that also as a family. So at the time, my father, my uncle, my brothers, and I all enrolled in this class and we took the class together and had all these outside kind of presenters. And it was really good because we would, you know, the class would be like five to seven and then we'd go, you know, grab um, dinner or beers after and talk about, you know, the class. And it was an opportunity for us to kind of pull that charter back out, dust it off, um, revisit it. Um, we also started talking about family business values and we went through a family business values exercise you know, we did disc profiles for all the family members, talked about kind of uh, our personality types and interpersonality kind of situation stuff. And so it just keeps the dialogue open. And I think um, that since that class, you know, we've had ongoing um, kind of family, family meetings. And when I say family, I mean, working in the business family, okay. not all extended family. And um, just to kind of keep that narrative going and kind of keep these things all refreshed and it's just kind of agenda driven topic driven to stay ahead of it and it's all just kind of at the end of the day I just boil it down to uh, protecting the downside being proactive not reactive um, plan now for all the contingencies so that you know something does go awry we're not running around um, huffing and puffing and we've got somewhat of a guiding guiding light so you know so People don't get too crazy, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, you think about that. Your grandfather did this work. Grandfather was G3, generation three. Is that right? Do I have, I've got that right? Yeah. Yeah. Because when I mentioned, yeah, because there's my great, great grandfather. Yep. And, and then there was another generation involved in the early founding, then my grandfather, then my father, then my, my brother's yeah, family. So your fifth generation. This is, it's interesting because it's, it's typically right at that, that third generation. When you start to say, we might've had a lifestyle business, not saying you did or you didn't, but if we want to make it to that hundred year mark, that is, you know, having that family charter or, you know, putting some family governance in place really makes a difference. And you guys made a very conscious decision to say, we need to make sure that we keep this performance-based. We need to make sure that we have people that buy into the company, that want to work at the company, that they're family members that want to be here. So by spending eight years out at a minimum, it's like, okay, I've spent that time out. I've developed my career. Now I'm going to pivot and go back and do, you know, work in the family business. Um, I need to be BYOBE um, and make sure that I'm bringing some stuff to it. I really, you know, it's, I've been doing this for 20 years plus, and it's rare to see people to make that pivot. Um, and so kudos to you in order to, you know, to make it to that fourth, fifth generation. I really do think that those are the kinds of tools that really help. So um, yeah, I think and- the theme there is just kind of like, you know, allowing outside influence, you know, diversity of thought, whatever you want to, however you want to put a title on it, but being open-minded, you know, to hearing people getting into a network and allowing that network to have some influence on the way you're thinking about things. 
And I think, you know, obviously my grandfather did that. He enrolled in the program. And, you know, question is, would, would he have done it if he wouldn't have, you know, enrolled in a program and, and, and went through some type of portal of facilitated yeah. um, network creation and building of building of relationships and people that he could trust to kind of open up of what the situation was. And clearly he took some advice or, or listened to some people. So it's just that opening. And, you know, again, you know, I, there's a lot of tools he put in place that I haven't even mentioned, you know, skip skip generation uh, trusts and for estate planning purposes and just starting to really put good, pra good practices in place to sustain the business, you know, on the stock gifting strategy and, you know, how answering little questions like, well, how was my, you know, my answering the question of my grandfather's retirement, you know, and getting on the same page, getting, getting himself and my father on the same page and how that was going to, how that was going to go. And which has now informed, you know, how my father is um, exiting the business. So it's nice to have the precedent and you experiment with it and try it out. And Yeah. And, and to that point, and I want to, that's a really neat observation is that it wasn't just business. It was my estate planning, my tax planning, and how, all of those things, when you push on one button, another one pops up. And so, you know, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. And so, you know, your grandfather was smart enough to say, I don't know all the answer to this, but I'm open to learning new ideas. The, the piece that I, you know, want to make, make sure people hear is that as the business grows, as the family grows, as the wealth grows, the complication also grows. And so the advisory team, the attorney, the accountant, the wealth advisor that got you where you are right now, it sometimes it's worth trying to do a, an RFP on those people to say, should I be looking to say, you know, am I missing anything? Um, and I, I just had a, a client that was going through that transition from G2 to G3. And we did something totally different that very rarely does a family need to do this. Um, but their wealth has gotten to a point where it's like, it's time to start thinking about, you know, some asset protection strategies that are just different than what you've been used to. And they're like, why, why are we doing this now? I'm like, well, one, your wealth was tiny before. It didn't really matter. But two, you know, it's just that as things change, you, you have to be open to those changes in the pivots. And it's not just in the business. It's also in the planning techniques and things that, you know, that you might do. So. I don't know how I, I don't know how anyone would know all this stuff. I mean, I'm 17 years in, which is scary for me to even say that number. 17 years in of joining the family, coming back to the family business, and I mean, there's so much that I still don't know in terms of just. You know, I got to reread the shareholder agreement like 15 times just to even understand all the legalese, and um, and everything's kind of connected, and it's all situational dependent. I mean, everything's so customized. Yeah. There's not just a one size fits all. Here, here's your here's your playbook because everything's changing all the time. And then of course, things are just evolving. You know, my brothers and I, you know, are, are there's, there's more generations coming, you know, as kids now and, they, and all these things going on. And um, it's not something that you can just kind of like say, oh, we're done here, you know, and just tuck it away. It's, right. So I, I think having the regular cadence is really important for us because things are changing all the time. It's just, okay, what's, what's the new business on the table that now might be a new input to consider into this model or what's new in the external world. You know, it could be anything, you know, laws, regulations, new approaches, hearing what other families are doing. But I mean, I, I have yet to meet anybody who's doing the same thing. You know? 
I love it. How many family members are in the business today? Well, my father's still in the business. He's still working in the business. Um, obviously not full time. And then um, my two brothers. So my brother, Greg, uh, is our supply chain manager currently. Our brother, Jeff, is our sales and marketing manager currently. I'm president currently. And so that's kind of the roles that we're all in right now. And we're the fifth generation now working in the business. So all three of us are on the, the management team of the company also. And, uh, but it's, it's, so it's exciting. It's an exciting time for our company because, you know, everyone's kind of learning and growing, you know, we're all fairly, you know, younger, I guess, you know, <laughs> to find younger, but you know, we got a nice, we got a runway in front of us that we can do some exciting things, you know, to hopefully grow the company, uh, and do some fun things. So it's kind of an exciting time here. Great. Um, for you, what are some of the best parts of being part of a family business? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we don't have any outside, you know, equity partners. We're not private equity. I don't, you know, none of those people are in the house, right? This is wholly owned uh, family kind of voting control. So, so the nice thing is, of course, and I guess I don't know it any other way, you know, at least for the last 17 years. And, I, and like I said, I had a short stint in Fortune 100, but I never, I never had a leadership position where I was reporting up to, you know, publicly traded type environment or anything like that. But, you know, the first thought when you ask that question is just kind of, you know, you kind of feel like you're in charge of your own destiny. You kind of feel like, you know, you feel entrepreneurial in nature. You feel um, an individual responsibility to, you know, the employees, uh, the community, the customers and um, your teammates and everything to kind of just put together a environment and a business model that everyone's kind of getting meaning and purpose and joy and we're getting some successes. You know, I always played team sports. My brothers all played team sports. So I think we both have, we all kind of have a, just a common ethos of um, it's fun when you win as a team. Right. And so, and, it, and it's nice to know that we're in kind of control of that team, you know, and ultimately we can make those decisions uh, that we want to make and we're not beholden to, you know, some third party that's putting on some external pressure that doesn't align with, you know, the ideology that we kind of want to hold. So I think that's it. You know, you kind of, it's that classic, you know, it's nice being a entrepreneur, solopreneur type mindset. And of course, you know, you get, you know, you get, you get to kind of personalize it and, and personalize it to the culture that you kind of, that you, that you kind of have. So of course there's a, I mean, I, I haven't really asked people directly this, like how much does this feel like Davis family culture versus just the business culture? I don't think I've ever asked it that way, but um, I have to imagine that, you know, there's some type of family um, touch onto the corporate culture, you know? Agreed. Um, how many employees at the company? We usually range between 120 and 130. I don't know our exact count, but it's somewhere between there. Yeah. And, and, and here's the part you just talked about Davis family culture and the business <laughs> culture. And my gut would say, you know, to be where you are today, they're probably pretty well intertwined. Um, and that, you know, everybody in the company could, could do that. But what's really neat is, and I just, was going through this statistic with somebody, the average family is what, 4.3 people today. And so when you think about, you know, all the people that are part of your business, it's really not, it's not the 120 
or the 130, but it's all the families that they go back to. So by having that great company culture and making it a place where they're happy to come to work and happy to leave to go home to their families, it's kind of nice to have, you know, that kind of ripple effect out into the community, um, you know, in the areas that you guys serve. So, yeah, I mean, when we went through our, um, when I was named president in 2015, we, I, I kind of made my first, my first mission really action was to rediscover our core ideology as a company. So we, so I ended up, and of course my brothers and family was involved. Um, but we, you know, I pretty much interviewed every single employee in the company and we talked about, you know, the, the purpose behind the company. We talked about, you know, what, there was a series of questions I had. I have to pull up my notes to see the exact questions, but it was along the lines of, you know, what type of behaviors do our best employees, you know, exhibit that really define the core value and, and behavioral statements of our company. And we brought that body of work all in and kind of re-established a set of core values, four core values with three distinct behavioral statements under each of those four core values, which, where's my card? Here's my Here's our card here. Mike, do you want to go through those and sharing them? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if hoping this isn't boring for people listening to this, but yeah, I mean, so our first core value is learning as a lifestyle. And we've got three behavioral statements under, under that core value. Our second core value is improve it, which is really a spirit of continuous improvement, but there's three very distinct and, and very chosen word words on, of behavioral what are some, give me an example of that because I'm, I'm this is so important and people miss this all the time. What you're doing is phenomenal. And I think, you know, you take it for granted. It, this is not boring. This is the core of how do we get to the next level right here is because there's 120 people that work there, 130 people. And people are attracted, magnetically attracted to culture more than anything else. It's also they're magnetically repelled and so poor company culture you know is detrimental and when we're living in a in a world right now where hiring and finding people is hard if you don't have a culture that that is alive and well and that's what you did is you did the mission to mars we call it you go out and find out what do other people that are here saying about who is the best of the best in our company what's alive in our company and that's what you're doing so Having the core values and the behavior statements, I think, again, Neil, my, you can teach a course on this stuff, Steve. This is phenomenal. Well, listen, I, I went, I, I'm an applied engineer at heart, right? Clarkson University engineer graduate, right? So I don't really invent anything. What really, my, my whole thing is I, I find someone that's smarter than me that has a really cool concept and I, and I apply it, right? But, right. and so in this case, um, um, I actually listened to Ann Rhodes. She was the, uh, the executive who worked for Southwest Airlines and then went to JetBlue and did a lot of their core ideology work. And she got me, she really opened up my eyes to thinking about adding um, distinct behavioral statements under just a core value. Cause a lot of people just have a core value, but the but three behavioral mean? statements. So with like three legs to each stool of a core value. So, I mean, you asked for an example. So like our third core value is, is connect and collaborate. So one of our behavioral statements, which I, which I like under connect and collaborate is um, have the courage to be respectfully honest and forthright. And I really like that one because um, respectfully honest and forthright is different than just honest and forthright. And so a lot of times I use these behavioral statements in some of my messaging. Like right now, I actually yesterday, we're pushing out a, uh, like a leadership 360 survey that our employees are going to be participating in. So in my mailing yesterday, I wrote and communicated in a video too, because I do video and, and written 
I said, um, listen, I'm really looking for everyone to be, and I quoted it, respectfully honest and forthright, you know what I mean? And in, 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 in aligned to that core value, because we really want to get that input to improve our leader skill sets and, and be able to coach our leaders to be better leaders. But it's not going to happen if we can't be respectfully honest and forthright. And then, um, I don't know, there's just little things like that. We have, our fourth core value is embrace the challenge. And um, I like, we have one behavioral statement under that core value that says, accept our customers' challenges as our own. And I like that one too, because sometimes things change and you know, you're either going to own it or not. And so, so yeah, it just helps in those behavioral statements. And those behavioral statements, of course, are embedded in the um, reward and recognition program, um, you know, positive consequence kind of in situations or, or um, in our performance management system in terms of kind of, you know, ultimately kind of being measured at the end of the day to those core values and behavioral statements also. So it's always under construction. I'm not sitting here for anybody listening, like I'm a freaking you know, angel from God on core values and this stuff. I'm on my journey too. I mean, I think we got a lot of things right. We took our time with it. It literally took, I want to say two years really to, from start to finish from when the early inception of, 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 of me saying, Hey, let's do this to where it finally shook out. And we started really in in bringing it into the organization and people were really owning it. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. It took two years. What I would say it's probably going to take 30 years and it's going to take 30 more because things will change. And what's you want the values to stay the same, but at the same time, they may not be alive and well. That might be some other things because of pivots that you make or, you know, where you decide to go with the business. Um, to that point, though, when someone, you know, if someone was hired that you felt was a culture fit and everything was right and everything was good, but you know, three months or three weeks into their, the position, you can just tell that, I mean, it's, it's like nails on the chalkboard from a culture perspective. How do you guys, what is your, how do you, how do you coach that? Or what do you do in a situation like that? Well, what's the, what's the quote that's rolling in my head as you're saying that? So like uh, people define culture or, or uh culture is defined by the people and systems, you know, so it, and it's not one or the other, like you can bring a bunch of people that maybe align with the culture, but if the systems or environment that they're within, they can, can, can maybe get soured over time or whatever. <laughs> Whereas also you could have the best systems in the world, but if we bring someone in that's inherently maybe perfect for your core values, the system will eventually, um, or the, the system or the people can eventually kind of turn. And so it's a balance. I think um, from a system standpoint, which is why I made that point, um, you know, from an onboarding, a recruitment and onboarding, it's about having seamlessness in the interview process and the recruiting stages in those core values. But then in the onboarding process, we have a, we have a 30, 60, 90 day review. And generally speaking by day 70, you know, there should be a pretty good understanding of whether or not things are going to work out or not. And then day 70, you know, uh, you exit that person if they're not, if they're, if they're showing all the signs that, that you have. So hopefully um, those things are prevented through a good onboarding process. That's, that's on the system side, you know, but um, you know, at the same time though, um, you know, people kind of have to be self-accountable and, and they're either going to make a decision whether or not they're going to be on board or off board with things. Hopefully you can vet that out. You know, it's funny when I get called in for interviews, I'm usually in the second or third round final round. I never, I don't even, I barely even look at the resume. I mean, I come into the interview 
And I figured all that's been done, right? And it's for me, it's questions more around uh, purpose and values. I ask a lot of questions about, um, you know, behavioral statements, situational things that, that I can then align with a behavioral statement or, or ask about core purpose, kind of like get out of the bed reason. Will they have a passion gear for our company um, because they like either the, sec- the industry that we're playing in or the customers that we're serving or the solutions that we're, that we're providing or they like the fact that we're kind of born in Buffalo, grown in Buffalo, and they've got like, you know, their hardcore Buffalo. I mean, there's, I can kind of sniff out, or I try to sniff out, I'm not saying I can, but I try to glean out some of those things um, to prevent having that turnover down the road and having a, I'll say a misalignment because the interview and recruitment process, I always think of it as, I'm not really interviewing them. I, I kind of feel like it's a two-way, you know, they're interviewing myself, they're interviewing the company, and we're also interviewing them. And it has to be, that has to be a match for both sides. You know, otherwise it's like, what we're going to live our life and die. And it's like, I don't, I don't have time for those types of misalignments. So, and they shouldn't either, either. So it's just being, trying to be honest and forthright about whether this is a good fit before we engage in this relationship. <laughs> no, that's, that's well said. Very well said. It, it's higher slow and fire fast, basically. But there's a lot, you know, that's easy to say that. But when you're when you're going through the process, there's a lot of systems that need to be put in place. Did you where did you, you, you know, you talked about the the former CEO of Southwest went on to JetBlue um, for your core values, you know, work and purpose work that you did. Anything that you, you know, any thought leaders that you leaned on for? Um, hiring or, you know, bringing people in, onboarding. Yeah, I mean, it's still under construction now. I mean, everyone's having workforce problems, right? So, you know, by no means, um, we don't have any in-house expert on this. So we we leverage third-party kind of, you know, people to, to get inspired or, you know, people are always sharing various articles and different things and we try to tune it up. So I don't think I am um, can speak too much on the recruiting side in terms of us world-class, but but it's just all these systems kind of just staying connected and just, I don't know. Yeah, no, we're improving them, you know, improving them. Yep. I try to share the name Brad Smart an awful lot with top grading. Mm-hmm. I think that their organization has done a really great job of taking exactly what you're talking about. And then Patrick Lencioni, um, his, you know, work on the ideal team player, I think is yep. pretty phenomenal. So, and it's, and it, it's resound, you know, you kind of reverberate exactly the, the things that they talk about. So good stuff. Um, taking a look at where you're at right now, what are the top, what are you, what are your top initiatives that you're working through today? Well, I can tell you what I did this morning, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, what, what, what my, what my front burner right now is um, I've been doing a lot of work on workforce development. I mean, I kind of see my role right now is I really, at the end of the day, I kind of go to the constraint, you know, everything's kind of a theory of constraints for me. And, and when I look at our, our growth strategy right now, one of the largest constraints is on the skilled labor, particularly the direct labor side of um, our factory. And so it's a problem. I mean, obviously you hear a lot about workforce going on right now. So one of the things that um, I'm really engaged on and which took up most of my morning was uh, building a workforce pipeline here in our community. So I'm on the uh, Erie, Buffalo and Erie County Workforce Investment Board. Uh, so I'm on that board already. And then I'm engaged in some workforce development committees in our trade associations. 
And I'm trying to, in essence, build a um, upskilling workforce training center uh, collaboration, a pipeline, a workforce development pipeline that can on a several several fronts. One, entry level, bringing people from you know various communities like Buffalo has got a pretty large refugee resettlement community. Uh, there's opportunities to pipe into that. Um, there's some unemployment in certain areas of the city. There's areas there's opportunities to tap into that. So bring people through an upskilling uh, program to get them to a baseline, so we can bring them into our organization as as an entry level hire. And then um, get them into our organization, and then that's kind of tier one. Then, then a second stage program I'm working on is a incumbent. Uh, by the way, I'm not doing this by myself, so I forgot to layer in that um, I've been collaborating with um, local people in our community that have similar similar capabilities or have similar types of manufacturing processes as us. So, in, in this particular case, I call it a printer converter council. And so it's a sector-based approach. So it's about seven employers involved right now. And I've kind of brought everyone together to form a council under the Buffalo Niagara Manufacturers Alliance umbrella to uh, work as a cohort where we can aggregate our demand signal, send that signal up into the supply chain of, you know, this talent pipeline management supply chain and generate and, and meet, that, meet that demand. So entry level coming in. And then once they're in the door, um, we would have a, a registered apprenticeship model for an incumbent worker training program to upskill them even further up a career pathway. So it's it's about sustainability. And I think, well, I guess since I'm on a family business podcast, it's kind of like, why am I putting so much effort into all this? Why am I calling, not really competitors, but like local companies that, you know, we kind of do some similar things with that, um, that really are pulling from the same workforce. Why am I so on this rising tide raises all ships kind of mentality? And it's because I'm not looking one year out. Like I'm looking, I'm looking 20 years out, 25 years out. There's a major long-term view here that I'm personally invested in. So, you know, if, if I was publicly held or just was in this position as a president of Joe Blow company um, on the New York state or New York stock exchange, I might not be as invested to be putting my time and effort into this type of program, but, but I see it as the only way to build a sustainable workforce pipeline into the into the future. So, well, maybe that's an inaccurate statement that I just made about um, not doing that if I was publicly traded. That's probably unfair. I think someone in this role should be doing that. But yeah. my point is, um, I think the long-term view has a lot to do with wanting to build a, a system that's going to be sustainable yeah. and uh, that I can rely on in the future. And that's that's what I've been, that's the first thing that came to mind. Not that I don't have anything else going on, but that's that's definitely one of my priorities right now. I love it. Um, Tupelo, Mississippi is a um, community that is a five-time All-American City award winner. No major roadways, no major, you know, waterways to get into Tupelo. And this goes back many, 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 many years ago where somebody said, if we don't start at helping the people at the lowest level, if we don't work at the lowest common denominator and give them ways to work and make money, then they're not going to be able to you know, spend their money at the hardware store or the grocery store or whatever. So we need to be able to do that. That model has been something, um, I think Vaughn Graham Grisham might've been the guy that has done a lot of writing about it. And I have, I have shouted that model um, to many, many economic development people. And I don't think I've ever been really heard, but what you're talking about is exactly that model. So if I can get a, my, my fingers on one of the articles or something, I'll zap that over to you because understanding how they made those transitions might be helpful. 
So very cool, very, very cool. This did, you know, went in so many different areas. Then, you know, I had my, my script, my show format, and we just threw that right out the window. And it was 10 times better than what I had anticipated. I really appreciate, you know, in that one statement, I talked about your pain point and what your focus and what you're working on. At the same time, it's the, what is my vision for the future? 20 years from now came out of one statement. So really, you've got a, your family's done a lot of work and has a lot to be proud of. And I'm not just blowing smoke at you. I really think that, you know, a lot of the tools, I hope people take the time to not just listen to this once, but listen to this a couple of times, because there's some really great nuggets that you shared um, and that we teach, you know, as we're, as when we're dealing with families. So um, totally out of the topic, name a family tradition, the Davis family tradition that you just love. It got a little bit disrupted with COVID, but um, first thing that popped into my mind is, and I think this goes all the way back to my grandfather's influence in scouting, uh, but we do an annual uh, camping trip we up in Algonquin Provincial Park, north of Toronto. It's, it's about, from Buffalo, it's like a six and a half hour drive. I think it's wow. okay. four hours north of Toronto up in the, up in the middle of nowhere. But um, we, uh, every May we do that. And that's a lot of fun. And it's, you know, hiking lake to lake, put the canoes on the back and portage between the lakes and, um, you know, trolling in the canoes for, you know, deep water lake trout and stuff. And it's just something that, um, is, has been a tradition, you know, and, and all the way back to since I was maybe three years old, we just do it. And my father, you know, he'd rent sometimes, you know, when we were younger, we'd rent cabins or something, but most of the time, um, I mean, pretty much it's, it's always, it's tent camping and hiking lake to lake and stuff like that. Just look forward to it every year and um, got a little disrupted with the border, hopefully going to get back into that. And so that's the thing that first popped into my head. So I love, you know, that in doing it that way, my family has done Columbus family vacation. We call it PFV for we're on 23 years, but as the family has grown, staying in places and finding a place to do that is really difficult. I might share your idea because with camping, all right, so we just need more tents. Okay, we just need more, you know, uh, more campsites to, to take yeah, over. Yeah. That's a totally different way to be able to say, we can make this happen. Mm -hmm. Love it. Um, I, if you're sitting down with three family businesses that are the next generation getting ready to take over the business, what are the, you know, what are your words of advice to them, if you know you're you're having that chat to say you want to make it to the next sixty years, here's my words of wisdom for you. Oh, geez, I mean, I don't even know. That's a tough one. I mean, just uh, it's so cliche, but just communication. You know, I mean, it, not cliche. It's yeah, it's just if you yeah. don't talk, it's like you know. And I just go back to something, you know, I mentioned honest and forthright, but I mean, it's like people need to be honest and forthright about what's going on. I know, you know, for my brothers and I, we're talking a lot about, you know, as we're starting to get, um, you know, have families and things like that. And um, it's like, well, what's the vision of you personally? What's the vision of the family? And then bring those visions. Now what's our ownership vision? And it's like this, uh, you know, cascade of visioning, <laughs> exercising, you know, yeah. but all that stuff requires um, self-reflection, number one, because if you can't self-reflect on it and, and I'm working on it, you know, I'm a work in progress, just like anyone else, trying to really iron out what that, what that looks like and then be, and then be 
had the courage to be honest and forthright about what that says. And um, so that it's on the table, because if it's not on the table, it's a surprise later. And there's nothing but nothing but spikes and pain when it's a surprise later. You know what I mean? Agreed. Progress, not perfection. That's yeah. uh, we, we like to live by that. Steve Davis, TapeCon, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a really great show and everybody listening, I hope that you got a lot out of this. This is one to go back and I haven't said this about very many of the shows, go back and re-listen to this and listen to the words that you know Steve's using. There's a lot of great tools buried inside of this one hour conversation. So thank you all. Uh, my name is Michael Columbus. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And you've been listening to the Family Biz Show. Cannot wait to have you listen to the next episode. We've got some really exciting ones coming up in the near future. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.